0: I'm Ben Horton, and you're listening to Undercurrents, the podcast from Chatham House. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Undercurrents. Thank you very much for joining me as we approach the end of March 2022. We're back this week with something a bit different for you. I'm joined in the studio by a guest host, a colleague of ours, a friend of the pod, of course, Leah Dehaan. Leah, how are you?
1: I'm really well, thank you. Thanks for having me back again. How are you?
0: Yeah, I am tremendously well. Thank you. Thanks for coming on. And I mean, it's a bit of a different episode this week. Obviously, with the situation in Ukraine, the issue of conflict is very much kind of forefront of everybody's minds at the moment. And if you check out the Chatham House website now, you'll find a whole host of analysis and explainers trying to make sense of the situation on the ground and the possible responses of the various actors involved. So I would recommend you head over to chathamhouse.org right now to look at that content. In this episode, we thought we would get into some other research that Chatham House is doing at the moment on other regions affected by conflict and in particular how civilians and local communities are adapting to conflict situations and that's why I've brought in Leah who is the project manager of our Except project which is working particularly looking at the Middle East and North Africa and various conflicts within those regions. So Leah could you maybe just begin by telling us a bit about the project?
1: Of course so Except stands for cross-border conflict and it looks at evidence policy and trends. It's supported by UK aid and so what we're really trying to do in this project is look at different regions, so as you mentioned, the Middle East, North Africa, the Horn of Africa, looking at Iraq, uh, the Levant in one case study, Libya in another, and Sudan in another, but really broadening it out and saying, okay, we know conflict is not contained to one country, which means that our policy response cannot be contained to one country and seeing in what different ways it spills over and how these conflicts connect to each other and connect to other countries. So for the Libya case, for instance, we go all the way to Nigeria, Niger, we connected to Sudan, and we see how these conflict systems are interacting with each other and how we need to basically have a new transnational way of thinking about conflict.
0: That's really fascinating. So who do you have on this episode?
1: So first, I'm joined by my two colleagues, Renard and Lena, who are going to talk to you about Iraq and the Levant. We touch on things like pharmaceuticals, the drug trade and how all of these things are related. And then I'm joined by Tim, who can tell you much more about the situation in Libya at the moment.
0: Brilliant. Let's have a listen.
1: Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us for another episode of Undercurrents. My name is Leah Dahan. I am the project manager for the Accept project, and I'm joined today by two of my colleagues. I'm joined first by Lina Khatib, who's the director of the Middle East and North Africa programme at Chatham House and is also the principal investigator for the Accept project. Alongside her is Renard Mansour, who's a senior research fellow in the same Middle East and North Africa programme at Chatham House. Together, Lena and Renard lead the Iraq and Levant case study on Accept. Thank you both so much for joining me today. It's a pleasure. Hello. So I think we'll jump straight into the questions, if that's okay with you both. In preparing for our chat today, I was thinking through the fact that quite often when we speak through the region that we're discussing today, we focus on dynamics in a specific country. So alongside this, I'm aware of the fact that some of the listeners may not be up to date with recent developments in the countries that we're discussing. So I'm going to ask you both a bit of a dual question. Can you talk through some of these recent dynamics, what is happening at the moment, but also draw in a regional perspective? So Lena, I'll start with you.
2: Well, we are in this case study looking at the Levant and Iraq, meaning Syria, Lebanon, uh, Iraq, but also a bit of Jordan. And of course, the Syrian conflict is raging. There is an economic crisis happening in Lebanon that's the most severe in the country's modern history. And at the same time, Syria has been making the headlines because of the growth in the trade of drugs uh, in Syria. Some publications are calling it the captagon capital of the world. And so if you think about all these things from a country perspective, you might think that the economic crisis in Lebanon and the Captagon trade in Syria and the conflict in Syria may be three unrelated things, but actually they are very much connected. And what we're doing in this project is look at how conflict dynamics connect across borders, especially political economic dynamics. And here illicit trade is part of this because, for example, the sale of drugs in Syria is something that is benefiting the militias, is benefiting the Syrian regime. It's benefiting basically the conflict actors. And the trade is also resulting in money for militias that are not just Syrian, militias that are backed by Iran, whether they are from Syria or not, are involved, for example, Lebanese Hezbollah. And so here we have a conflict system that goes beyond borders. And for us to really address it appropriately, we need to not just look at the country picture, but also the regional picture.
1: Perfect. So, Renard, I'll bring you in at this point. Of course, I don't ask the question about cross-border conflict by accident. This is what, in the Accept Project, we are really talking about. So, I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more about how you're thinking about this idea of cross-border conflict research. Are you thinking about the border regions? Is it central to think about the regional dynamics? How have you thought about this idea of cross-border conflict in your work?
3: Well, I guess part of it is what what we've Been just discussing right now that oftentimes countries and borders in the Middle East are taken as jurisdictions uh, in silos. And really, what we're seeing is that those borders don't necessarily stand on a lot of grounds, and in particular on what we see as supply chains going across. If the first point is that borders in the Middle East aren't as hard and rigid as it might appear, the second point. Is that what happens in borders is connected to what happens in cities? So we often think of borders as peripheries, as border towns as being not as connected, sometimes not you know not having roads or not having access the whole rural versus urban divide. But what we've seen is that borders are connected, and in many of these countries, what happens at a border, includes many actors from the city, from the capital. In an example uh, that we're looking at in in the Iraq case study, we're looking at one of the biggest trading ports in the region, the port of Um Qasr in Basra, uh, where billions of dollars come in every year. A lot of trade. And there are at least six or seven central government institutions present at that border. And if you go across these countries that we're looking at, across the borders, you do see that the trade incentivizes and brings in a lot of the center. And so we're not talking about smuggling. We're not talking about something illegal under the table. We're talking about a political economy of corruption. And and so that's why we think that this kind of cross-border accept project and concept Uh, is trying to push against policymakers who either want to view each country as a country, so you have a Syria team, an Iraq team, or who want to view cross-border trade and smuggling as something disconnected from government politics.
1: So you've provided the perfect segue into um, really talking about what this project is all about. Lena. can I ask you to talk a little bit through, as the the principal investigator for the project, where where the idea came from and how you're seeing it developing into the future?
2: Well, the idea came from our collective work uh, in the Middle East and North Africa program team at Chatham House, work that we did on war economies in the past, Renard was involved in that project. Our colleague Tim Eaton uh, was the person spearheading it, and uh, it's thanks to him that the concept of Except actually came about, which is the idea of looking at conflict as a supply chain that cuts across borders. We wanted to build on our previous work on conflict economies to say it's not just about countries; it's also about flows. And at the same time, connected to the flow of conflict across our borders, we wanted to look at the impact on communities and how sometimes people end up involved in the political economy of conflict that flows across borders just because they are trying to cope. So uh, uh, my colleague Tim Eaton is the one I would credit with coming up with the uh, concepts of the conflict supply chain and the coping supply chain, uh, meaning the flows that support conflict um, across borders, but also the flows that people end up entangled in as they try to just cope. And this is important for policy because... Very often, policy uh, is about trying to stop illicit flows, but this might have uh, a detrimental impact on the communities that have no other choice. So in trying to highlight these two issues, we're also trying to help policymakers come up with policies that uh, do no harm at the very least and and try to actually be helpful to the people that uh, may end up in this kind of situation. Thank you. And actually,
1: that picks on a point that I really like to bring into the conversation, which is the fact that quite often when we're talking about conflict, um, the impact this has on communities, on their livelihoods, is is something that doesn't get as much attention as the sort of complex international dynamics of trade or conflict, if you will. And so I know that this is a piece that you've brought into your work on except so far. And I was wondering how you've been thinking about Cross border conflict and how it impacts people's everyday lives. So, I might th- start with you there, Renard.
3: Yeah, well, you see the impact every day and you see it everywhere. You know, as Lena has been talking about now when you have these supply chains and even illicit supply chains that perhaps people don't interact with every day, it does become power, it does become money, it does become finances, and these groups proliferate without accountability, without rule of law, and affect ecosystems, affect economies. But something that we've been looking at, and, 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 and one of our papers that will come out on this will look at pharmaceuticals, Right, So we're not talking about illegal drugs. We're not talking about weapons. We're not talking about you know, cash, money, laundering We're talking about pharmaceuticals, uh, which is particularly relevant during the time of COVID-19, but even generally, obviously, because every citizen interacts with a pharmacy many times in their lives, more than they would, for example, with a drug dealer uh, or, or, or a weapons dealer. And what we've discovered is just how prolific this industry is. And it's necessarily a border industry. It's a cross-trade sort of industry going from our case studies all the way from Iran all the way to Lebanon, where you see a a whole host of actors, Uh, some of them illegal, but many of them legal. Many of them governments, political parties, state institutions, um, all part of this. Everyone has their hand in the pharmaceutical trade, including international companies and local companies, private business. Uh, and it gets very murky. But at the end of the day, what the result is in all of this trade is that Iraqis are more likely to take an expired or fake Panadol or painkiller because of that. And yet we're talking about an industry that per year in Iraq is in the billions. So it's a significant industry with significant generation of revenue potential for political parties and at the end of the day, significant harm on the everyday citizen.
2: I mentioned the captagon trade. When it comes to Syria, there's a lot of money that the regime is making and the militias are making and the warlords, of course, uh, and some private business people from this trade. And uh, some attention has been given to the amount of money that the small time smugglers make when they carry Captagon on their backs across the border. It's been found that some of them may get as much as 10,000 US dollars to carry one load um, across the border, which of course is a lot of money. However, The big picture is that actually the vast majority of the money that is uh, generated through this trade is not going to Syrian people. It's actually going to the militias and the warlords and the regime. So what we're seeing here is actually... Uh, an illicit trade increasing inequalities in Syria in a much more significant way than perhaps many might even imagine. So let's not focus on the odd smuggler who gets the $10,000. Let's look at the big picture where the real big money is going. And uh, it's also showing how this network, as Renard said, involves not just actors that are involved in the conflict directly by being armed. It's also about government actors, the business sector and and, and others. And once again, it's the civilians who uh, end up uh, suffering as a result.
1: So that already brings me to my last question, and actually is something that I spoke about with Tim Eaton, who you've mentioned a little bit, who is similarly a senior research fellow in the Middle East and North Africa programme, And we have just recorded an Undercurrents episode, which you should also definitely listen to as part of the ACCEPT project looking at Libya. Now, in our discussion, we spoke a little bit about how ACCEPT is going to go for the next four years. We're going to be on Undercurrents talking to you about this research in the next four years as well. And so what I want to ask you is, can you talk us through something that you've learned, a new detail that you can share with us that you're hoping to follow through as this research progresses?
3: So... One thing that's come out, and a lot of what we do in our program is try and challenge and, and be, you know, critically examine some of the assumptions, but also some of the definitions used by Western policymakers in uh, the Middle East and North Africa. Something that's come out in my recent work, again on, on Accept, in Iraq specifically, is questioning the definition of what is a private sector versus a public sector, because of course, the World Bank and IMF and the West have ideas of what a private sector is and what the public sector is, but in a country like Iraq, a rentier state where you know the annual budget could be a hundred trillion, you have these state-owned enterprises, you have this massive public sector where people, you know, they say ninety percent of re- revenues generated from oil, but to the government. What you see is, A, the privatization of the public sector. So the public sector becomes for private profit from political parties. And B, of course, a very small private sector. So conceptually, I think what I'm interested in is whether if we apply a different lens to a problem that's often cited in a country like Iraq, which is there's no private sector, what if there is a private sector, but it's just a different looking private sector? What, what are the implications of that kind of re-examining for reform and for international policies? And I think at the end of the day, obviously, it will come down to accountability. And, you know, although it looks like a bloated bureaucracy and a big state, really, when you look, it's very hollow. And most of what is there is going to private interests. So that's something that's come up, kind of this this question on understanding private versus public from accept.
1: Brilliant, thank you. Lena. did you want to come in on that as well?
2: Yes, I would say that uh, the project really is very much about what's happening on the ground, but at the same time, it's about how this is linked to the bigger geopolitical picture. So again, going back to the example of Syria, with so much attention to Syria as a Captagon uh, capital, according to how many media outlets have have characterized it, my research shows that actually the main actor in the Captagon trade is Hezbollah in Lebanon. So, This trade is very much manifesting itself in Syria, but the the, the main actor, in addition, of course, to the fourth division of the Syrian army, but the main actor is Lebanese. It's, It's Hezbollah. And here we have to look at how this plays out in Lebanon and why, and in a way, a bit like Iraq part of the enabling uh, environment in Lebanon is the corrupt political system that is in place with the lack of accountability that comes with it that allows actors like Hezbollah to act in this way. And here we have to look at the bigger geopolitical picture and go, okay, if we are going to really to address the issue of the captagon uh, trade in Syria, we can't really do it without looking at first the issue of corruption Uh, in Lebanon and the very much uh, needed uh, reform in the country. This takes us back to discussions that Lebanon is having right now with the IMF regarding the political and economic crisis that is happening in the country. And this takes us to uh, who is actually involved as a stakeholder in this issue. And we see All kinds of lines linking Lebanon to the Gulf, to the United States, these external stakeholders uh, that have been involved one way or another in the Lebanese political system over the years, whether indirectly or directly, very often enabling the system to continue Western policy here. Uh, is also in a way responsible because, in in many ways, the uh, way the West had handled Lebanon was through trying to keep the status quo of this political system in place because it was seen to be stable. So you you'll see how this big geopolitical picture actually is very much tied to these granular dynamics that we are looking at, and in very indirect ways, perhaps have led to conflict are uh, kind of continuing and so it's very important to always be reminded of the big picture
1: Thank you and thanks so much those are two threads that we can pick up in our next discussion um, Lena Rinald thank you so much for joining me today Thank you Thank you Thank you so much for joining me today Tim how are you?
4: Welcome Very well. How are you?
1: Yeah, I'm great. Thank you. So without further ado, I thought we'd jump straight into it. There may be listeners who are not quite aware or haven't been able to keep up to date with recent developments in Libya, particularly considering how much has happened in the country recently. I was wondering if we could start there. Could you talk us through what has been happening in the country over the last few months?
4: So to understand what's happening in, in Libya, Uh, You probably need to go back a couple of years. Obviously, it's now over a decade since the revolution in 2011. But in October 2020, a third phase of civil war came to an end, and the political process gathered momentum at that point. And by March of 2021, a new government was formed. But it was a government that only had interim status. It was supposed to see Libya through to elections uh, in December of 2021. However, a series of recriminations, problems with the political process and the reemergence of Muammar Gaddafi's son Saif al-Islam as a candidate all came together to throw off that uh, electoral timetable. And so what we've really seen is the collapse of the political process in Libya since that point. A UN which is struggling now to work out what the direction of travel should be, and the domestic actors forging their own plans for what they think should happen next. And as we speak at the beginning of March, there is a situation whereby there is a prime minister of a government that was appointed via the UN process, that interim government that I mentioned, but now there's also a prime minister-designate appointed by the parliament, and he is currently trying to drum up support to form a new government. And we're in this strange kind of limbo where there's a strong potential for another governance split. Worth noting that between 2014 and 2021, Libya had two governments. So there's a danger of that situation re-emerging and a lot of uncertainty about what happens with the political process. And then, of course, with the broader problems writ large, with a, a wide array of armed groups controlling territory and power generally being quite fragmented.
1: Great. Well, thank you so much. I think that's a very helpful introduction. One of the questions I had, and I think it touches a little bit on what you've said, is that a lot of the dynamics that we seem to consider when it comes to Libya are domestic ones. We, or You've mentioned now the elections, you've mentioned some of the power struggles maybe happening between the armed groups. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about the transnational nature of this conflict and how it connects across borders.
4: Sure. So... Libya's conflict is to a significant degree internationalized. If you were to uh, head to Libya today, you would find the presence of uh, Wagner mercenaries, obviously of Russian origin, although the Kremlin denies affiliation to them. Uh, There have been mercenaries from a number of other countries, including neighboring countries such as Sudan and Chad. And there's also a strong presence from the Turkish military. But I think. Some of the more interesting connections and and those that we'll be probing in the project is how Libya's conflict has connected to other zones of conflict, other conflict systems, and also impacted developments in other countries and and vice versa. So you can see, for example, in the illicit sector, it's really notable that the collapse of uh, the state's authority after 2011 and, and the collapse of the security apparatus has led to a lot of competition to control elements of the economy, and notably in a, in a rapidly growing illicit sector. So that's clearly had impacts across borders in terms of what's been moved across them. But also um, markets have been created, security markets. So if you look, for example, in eastern Libya today and much of southern Libya, you'll find quite a lot of presence of foreign mercenaries from Chad and Sudan these are uh, armed groups, rebel movements that have been displaced from those countries and found uh, residence in Libya. And so they've left one conflict zone, in a sense, and been enlisted into another. In some cases, notably the Sudanese mercenaries fighting in alignment with the Eastern-based Libyan National Army or Libyan Arab Armed Forces and have been used very, as a very clear part of their strategy. In other cases, you see those groups roving, and kind of trying to engage in the economy, trying to control things, particularly illicit markets. So there are clear intersections between these economies, of course, and these conflict systems. And and those are some of the connections that we're trying to understand through the project
1: thank you. I think you've uh, perfectly segued into the thing that would be great to discuss because, of course, I'm not asking you about transnational nature of conflict by accident. That's the fundamental piece of the project that we're talking about. So could you maybe talk a little bit more about what it is that you want to find out through the ACCEPT research and where you think it could go?
4: Absolutely. So I think when we look to understand conflicts, predominantly we have quite a a state-centric lens, a country-centric lens, you know, what's happening in Libya and we'll look at the domestic drivers of that conflict and we'll also question about what international actors are doing. There are a lot fewer questions and less understanding of how Libya's conflict may impact other conflicts in neighbouring states and vice versa and particularly through this project as well what we want to understand is the intersection between those conflict systems and markets. So The reason uh, I'm looking at human smuggling and and trafficking uh, is I want to understand its transnational supply chain and how that connects to conflict at different spots along it. So you can see, for example, that the collapse of the uh, Gaddafi regime in 2011, uh, within a couple of years of that, Libya becomes a much more prominent thoroughfare for, for migrants seeking to reach Europe. It transforms Um, the illicit marketplace in those areas and actually takes away a lot of the opportunities that migrant workers would have previously had so trying to understand how conflict has impacted that and then how the local actors have responded again looking at the development of security markets in a way we're talking about you know taxation in a kind of academic sense in terms of the money that's made from armed groups, but also others who may be uh, running services, food, places where migrants stay who benefit from this. So that's something that we want to look at. And I think what distinguishes this work from a subject area, which is obviously much explored, is that there's been a lot of focus on looking at the situation for migrants, understandably Mm -hmm. from the terrible conditions that they've suffered, the rights abuses that they've um, gone through, and also then looking at how Western policy has impacted those developments. But the focus for us here will be, how do these specific types of economic activities connect to conflict? You know, is control of these sectors a a driver of conflict? How has that emerged? How has that changed? And hopefully um, the idea is that by understanding how these economic activities relate to conflict in different areas along the supply chain. So we're looking from East and West Africa via Libya that will get a clue into understanding this intersection between the markets and conflict and therefore be able to advise policymakers on what they might do to address these conflict-related elements.
1: Just thinking about the fact that, as it were, the country at the moment has two poles of power. If There's a prime minister and a prime minister-designate, as you mentioned. Yeah. How does that impact the situation when something that's already relatively or incredibly fractured now has two potential avenues for the government to develop through?
4: Well, I think that relates to a broader question about where power lies. And the paradox of Libya in a way is that the state is in some ways all powerful. Almost all of the money that's generated by the country in terms of revenues come from oil and gas around 97%. And all of those are distributed via the state through its central bank, through its Ministry of Finance. Yet at the same time, those in control of the state have a very limited ability to control uh, Libya's diverse population. and, And there's a lot of local power. So you'll see a situation whereby particularly the security sector is diffuse. You've got armed groups and power centres from various different cities, yet the, the centre is still where all of the, the money is, is available from. So you see this dynamic whereby these various power centres are competing for a, a degree of access to that, that resource, and that in many ways defines the conflict. But when perhaps we look at these elements relating to the illicit sector... If you look at something like human smuggling and trafficking or or drug trafficking, actually these are some of the few things that don't rely on the state's resources to profit from because they're coming from elsewhere. So what matters here is the ability to control territory and is the ability to be um, able to continue without being stopped effectively by other local actors or national actors. And that's where it gets interesting because effectively you see in Libya these local deals being made. We're looking at the the southeast, the southwest, and the northwest, and in each of those areas, the local security actors in control seem to have at least tacit understandings with the national level decision makers that they're able to engage in these markets and profit from them in return for a degree of loyalty, or at least not opposing the plans and goals of those policymakers who are in government.
1: We've spoken a little bit now about sort of the national level and then the local level powerful actors, as you've mentioned. So what happens when we follow that sort of further down and we start thinking about how this is impacting communities and how people are able to sort of protect their livelihoods? How do you see the sort of dynamics that we've spoken about impact communities across Libya?
4: Well, if you look at the impact across Libya, you can see that certainly in Tripoli, The presence of state institutions and, again, the presence of that um, central funnel of resources being right in the middle of the capital, pretty much in a square mile, means that the elites and uh, powerful actors in those areas have had quite a good access to resources from the state. And I think you can see that's replicated, albeit to a lesser extent, in places like Benghazi, where Khalifa Haftar's forces have become dominant, looking to control the public and private sector. But when you look at areas of the country that are more distant from the capital, particularly in the south, you can see that they get less from the state in a way. In many, many cases in these areas, you have large numbers of people that are undocumented, don't have the state sector employment, which so many Libyans have, don't have the access to finance, banking services, these types of things. But also one of the big changes since 2011 is the ineffectiveness of and collapse of subsidies, which would have previously significantly helped these communities, and also major state-led projects, for example, in the agricultural sector. So you see a kind of dual development here, whereby the opportunities in the formal sector that's heavily underpinned by the state have reduced significantly. And at the same time, those changes in the illicit sector that I mentioned um, really gathering steam means that much of the opportunity for these local actors comes in the informal sector, to say the least, or often around illicit practices. And so that's unleashed a separate kind of dynamic whereby there's a competition for control of those sectors. And that has been a driver of conflict among various communities who are seeking to control certain trade routes or um, certain supply chains, and meant that particularly for, say, young people in these areas, that's where the best access to resources has come. And so you'll see, for example, in some cases where young men, notably, will choose to join armed groups because of the rewards that that will bring financially, or perhaps engage in the human smuggling and trafficking sector just by driving migrants from point A to point B. Uh, Some time ago, an interview with a smuggler indicated that the local would only have to make about three trips in southern Libya to northern Libya to then be gifted the, the truck that he was driving, which would be worth about $15,000. And it's worth noting that the city where he comes from in Sabha, his, his, the best he otherwise could have hoped was for around $50 a month of income. So that's not complicated maths to understand the incentive structures okay. there. And I think over time as well, you've seen varying changes in perception in these areas as well, where people understand that these are the opportunities that are available and in some cases have reconciled with that. So that's very different to the international perspective whereby anybody who engages in smuggling is some reckless criminal with no flagrant disregard for human life. For many of these people, the migrants turned up and they wanted to go from point A to point B. He's driving them. That's a service. And engaging in these sectors, it looks very different.
1: Hitting our final question, so as listeners of Undercurrents um, will of course know, and I know because I've been a colleague of Ben Horton, who's your usual host for a while now, I know that he likes to end these conversations on a high note or have some sort of positive conclusion. Now, we're only just starting out this project, and also um, we're talking about some pretty serious topics in terms of conflict and human smuggling. So I won't ask you that question, but what I will say is... After six months of this research project, can you maybe share a new detail that you've learned or a sort of a nugget of information that you hope to follow through the research as it progresses?
4: Yeah, as you note, I mean, many of the elements of this study deal with with, with conflict and some very difficult circumstances for people. But I think one of the things which is interesting is historically, particularly since 1969 when Gaddafi took over Libya, the expectation that the state would be the ultimate actor to resolve the population's problems and the source of wealth, I think, is something that's being challenged, particularly by young people. So I do think that there is a dynamism. The failures of the state have incentivized these people, particularly uh, young people, to try and find alternative means of creating business, working in the, in the private sector, some of those coping mechanisms have not been positive, for example, the proliferation of armed groups. But there are positive examples of, of new ventures, new engagement in the economy, which I think is something which can be built upon. So ultimately, when looking at addressing this intersection between markets and conflict in, in Libya specifically, there's going to need to be a change in the way that the state works. It can't simply be that the, the state parcels out money in the way that it does and on a patronage-based approach. So by actually working towards developing these alternative sources of livelihoods and initiatives, I think long term, that's a seed of of the solution in Libya. And hopefully, if there can be a reconciliation of how Libyans wish to be governed and and a more realistic role for the state to play, then that will be a a critical ingredient to the success of that in, in the longer term
1: great thank you well i think a seed of a solution is definitely the positive spin that we can we can end this on so thank you so much tim for coming to speak to me today and uh, let's follow this conversation as the project develops
4: thanks very much leah thank you for having me
0: So that's it for this episode of Undercurrents. Thanks for listening all the way through if you're here. Leah is still with me in the media studio. Leah, that was such a great set of interviews. Thanks very much. And I know that we're going to be coming back to the EXCEPT project and some of the other regional examples that you're exploring in the future. What's the sort of vision for the project, I suppose?
1: For EXCEPT, this is really just the start of the conversation. We'll be back over the next four years and hopefully bring you more information about the research that we're doing bringing voices from the region and continuing this conversation on undercurrents.
0: Awesome. Well, I can't wait for the conversation to continue. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode. And thank you, our listeners, for sticking with us as well. As I mentioned at the start, if you're looking for analysis of the situation in Ukraine, then the best place to go is to check out our website at www.chathamhouse.org. And I hope soon to also be bringing you some exciting information about a potential new podcast which will also be looking at the various dynamics around that conflict if you want to keep up with our work on social media then just follow us on twitter at chatham house and we will be back in a couple of weeks with some new interviews for you till then stay well and thank you very much for joining us